There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friends. You're about to listen to the latest episode. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market of the Versailles Anniversary Project. But before you do, you should know that this is episode 6, so if you haven't listened to the other episodes, maybe do that. Maybe listen to the introduction episodes too so that you know what's going on. Maybe though you're a glutton for punishment, or maybe you just really want to know about Georges Clemenceau, in which case, listen on. Before we actually start this episode though, I should let you know that it is brought to you by The Delegation Game. The Delegation Game is a game, as the name suggests, but it is invented by me, and it is probably one of the craziest things I've ever thought of. My wife actually asked me, how on earth did you think of this? And I'm not really sure why. It was a result of several days of, well, thinking about how to get the most out of the Paris Peace Conference, the Treaty of Versailles, this whole anniversary project thing we're doing. And I decided what better way to get the most out of it than to ask my listeners if they want to take part. No, seriously, to send them to Paris and see how they get on. 
You should know of course that if you want more information there's a dedicated section of the website explaining absolutely everything. But here's the short version. You invent an avatar, you send him or her to Paris, and by cooperating with your fellow delegates online and voting in polls and responding to challenges etc, you get to shape how exactly the Paris Peace Conference went down. By the end of it, and we will be following the Paris Peace Conference throughout like the 24 weeks of its existence, but by the end of that whole process, well, we'll have reached something that is probably going to look slightly messy, but it should be really fun as well, and I'm really looking forward to starting it. The long and short of it is that if you sign up now before we start off in the 18th of January, when it actually properly launches, then the delegate that you send will have more influence and will be kind of favoured more above the others. But that doesn't mean that those that sign up afterwards won't have any chance in making things happen. This is just to make sure that those of you that sign up early get some advantages for doing that. It is also realistic as well, because the people that were there earliest in Paris had the most advantages in real life. So yeah, let's be realistic. As realistic as we can be, because let's be honest here, the sky is the limit when it comes to what you can or can't do. All you need is people to support you and to support the things that you suggest, but we'll be going with a rough structure based on what actually happened a century ago. If you're interested, then check out the Delegation Game by going to WDF Podcast forward slash Delegation Game or just simply clicking the link in the description below. I'm really excited to be in it, but of course, other than just the fantasy booking style versions of the Paris Peace Conference, we also have the real life versions, and that's why you're here today. So enough about all that. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 6. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our first 
profile episode on Georges Clemenceau. In the next two chunky episodes, we will be tracing the political career of old Georges, placing his career in context of the pre-war French experience, its traumatic experience of the Great War, and its hopes, dreams and fears in the post-war world. We open today with a harrowing account of the war and its damage upon France, told through a surprising pair of eyes, the British soldier and author J.H. Morgan, who penned his thoughts on the bleak state of France while actually en route to Germany following the conclusion of the Treaty of Versailles. So, yes, this fast-forwards our story a bit, but Morgan's account was so vivid and harrowing that I think it was really, well, necessary to include it, to set us up for exactly what the French were facing into by the time our story resumed. And bear in mind, Morgan is telling this story once the Treaty of Versailles was concluded, so our story begins earlier, when France was in an even worse state than Morgan here elucidates upon. But in any case, let's begin the episode. When describing his travels, from the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles to the beleaguered government in Berlin, where he and his British-French peers will be tasked with implementing the key tenets of the recent treaty, J.H. Morgan managed to draw up an incredible image of a French countryside still in a state of apocalyptic stasis, as though frozen in a cocoon of destruction, waiting to be told that the war was in fact over. The scenes which Morgan saw, while peering out of the window of his chugging train that meandered obliviously through the barren countryside, convinced him of the need to ensure that Versailles was implemented and that Germany was disarmed. France, as Morgan well knew, couldn't afford another great war. The extract is a bit on the long side, but I think you'll agree, it's absolutely worth it. J.H. Morgan recalled the scene. Now and again, my compartment was brilliantly illuminated by the lights of one station after another, as we flashed through and the noise of the train rose to a louder state with the vibration, and then changed to a lower one as we gained the unconfined spaces of the country. Gradually, everything seemed to change. As I glanced out into the night, I noticed that the telegraph poles and their filaments of wire had completely vanished. The time, since we had passed a station or signal box, now began to appear incredibly long. The landscape itself had changed. It had a curiously bleached look, and not a tree was to be seen. Complete silence had fallen upon the merry group of officers in the corridor. Then I heard two French words uttered and no more. The words were, Mon Dieu. Then an Englishman spoke, and I recognised his voice. Christ, it reminds me of the Dead Sea. I rose and went out into the corridor. It was now nearly midnight and the moon was at the full. Everything was etched in black and silver. The air grew very cold. A vast silence encompassed us, a silence so deep that not a sound could be heard except the panting of the engine, which had now slowed down to a crawling pace. I looked out. Silhouetted in the cold moonlight, there loomed up on either side of the great line gaunt shapes of a monstrous uniformity. There was something macabre about those shapes. It was as though we were passing through an interminable cemetery. They looked like gigantic tombstones. Then I saw that they were the gable ends of ruined houses. Street after street of them, at right angles to the line, ran radiating past us, and each street sparkled white in the moonlight with the splinters of shivered glass or gleamed grey with the pallor of crumbled masonry. 
the ruins were wrapped in a winding sheet of mortar, fine as dust, but where the wind had winnowed in the deserted streets, the mortar lay in drifts against the walls, as thick as sand heaps. The multitudes of those sepulchral shapes suggested that we were passing through what had been a great city at one stage, but its name none of us could tell. Like the buried cities of antiquity with their plaintive appeal to the historian, it seemed to await the archaeologist's spade, as though crying out for recognition. Nothing moved in that wilderness of stone and dust, nor did any living thing appear. Even the rats had deserted it. Now and again an open space told of a park or garden, but the trees had lost all character. Not a leaf hung upon their stark limbs, and I looked hard at their distorted shapes, shivered and blasted by gunfire, trying to decipher in them the filigree pattern of an oak or the fan-like outline of an elm. But those stricken shapes were as anonymous as the city itself. They reminded me of the Delville Wood of the Somme in 1916. One poplar alone had escaped. Its tall, clean-limbed shape pointed to the sky like a note of exclamation. The city vanished like a ghost into the night, and we were once again out into the open country. Looking intently out the window of our train at the vast, moonlit spaces, I understood now why the countryside seemed so bleached. Not a blade of grass was to be seen. Everything was withered into dust. Now and then, again, the train slowed down, for our engine drivers were wary of the shadows thrown in black patches by ruined houses across the track ahead. We crawled through another dead city, and then another, and yet another. The journey seemed interminable. As the night grew colder and yet more cold, a deep impression seemed to settle on us all. Conversation in the corridor flickered and went out like a dying candle. Yet there we remained, fascinated by the weird horror of the scene. Weeks later I read a description of it all by a German journalist who had passed that way and who gave thanks to God that the fatherland had altogether escaped that awful disfigurement. Throughout the long night one little group of officers in sky-blue uniforms remained in the corridor and after their first exclamation they never spoke again. They were French. If this account by J.H. Morgan tells us anything... It is that France had been through an indescribable pain. A pain so dark, so all-consuming, so shocking and so sobering that not even the former enemies of France could do anything other than thank the divines that their own land had not suffered the same fate. Those Germans had, of course, been responsible for this destruction. Destruction on a scale which had been above the imagination of those Frenchmen who went to war with revenge and offensives in their hearts in late summer 1914. Five years later, with the full range of the consequences of this march in mind, it was all those Frenchmen could do to sit in silence and contemplate the horror which had befallen their country. How could these traumatised men have known that, in almost exactly 21 years, an even worse horror would befall them again? Before this scene could be greeted by Frenchmen, though, French soldiers on the battlefield would have to earn this reward. To some, indeed, the final year of the war was the worst year of their lives. The newspapers emphasise our entry into the fifth year of the war. They all preach resignation and sacrifice with all the attitude and phraseology of religion. They all promise victory, but naturally without defining it. These were the cynical words of Michel Corday, a French author and member of the civil service, who began his career as a sceptic and ended it as a convinced pacifist. 
Corday's exhaustion from so many years of war is palpable in this statement. He seemed unable to imagine either an end to the military sphere of the war or to conceive of any means through which a suitable peace treaty could be hammered out. Some of his colleagues believed that no effort should be made to hammer out such a peace treaty, even if the opportunity arose. No compromise peace, we must crush them, exclaimed a former Minister of Public Works, and he was far from the only French statesman to feel this way. Such harsh rhetoric was nothing new in the context of the Great War, but even though Michel Corday could scarcely have believed it, the circumstances had indeed changed. By the time Corday wrote this disillusioned message in late August 1918, the military tide had already turned, and the countdown to Germany's defeat had begun. Michel Corday's perspective was merely one among millions of Frenchmen who had been mobilised, wounded, killed, captured or vanished during the Great War. It was a conflict like no other, an event in human history which defies easy explanation or classification. It was a conflict which contained static lines of trenches and breathtakingly fluid advances. It was fought in the industrialised west of Europe, along the wild and vast eastern reaches, in the mountainous Caucasus, in the Arabian sands, along the borders of Greece, in the seas of the Atlantic and around the coasts of Britain, in the air above the battlefield and even in the hearts and minds of the combatants' home populations. It was imagined by politicians, directed by generals and fought by men of all ages. It led to a flourishing of wartime literature, to a whole host of new slang terms in so many languages and to a fearful appreciation for exactly what the pinnacle of military technology could do. The war began with a dizzying set of declarations from all corners of Europe, and then with a desperate campaign of concentrated advance from Germany towards France, as the Austrians attempted to hold the east. The mass German advance through Belgium and the miracle on the Marne which took place in early September 1914 set the tone for the rest of the war. It had taken a Herculean effort of manpower and organisation for the Germans to hurl themselves so far into enemy territory. It would require the Allies to make a similar effort to hurl them back and to end the war in the West. Infamously and famously, several efforts were made on both sides to end the war in this all-important front, the Western Front. On each occasion, enthusiastic promises were made about the genius of the plans at hand and the doom which the enemy would face. These exclamations brought about blood-soaked spectacles in muddy fields which were attributed names that added to their tragic mystique the aforementioned Marne in 1914, Ypres in 1915, Verdun and the Somme in 1916, Passchendaele in 1917 and the Spring Offensive in 1918. These encounters, and so many more besides, told the tale of the Great War. It was one of attrition, of withstanding the full force of the enemy's offensive, of having the forbearance on the battlefield and in the home government to absorb what was being thrown at you, of holding out for as long as possible and attempting not to crack until your enemy did, all the while withstanding terrible pressures and extremes of weather and depravity and willpower and patience and faith. Funnily enough to be talking about weather when, I don't know if you can hear, but the rain is pattering away on the roof at the moment. So that just adds to the atmosphere, but it was by no means deliberate. It almost serves to remind you, if the idea of standing out in the rain is not very appealing to you, imagine standing out in the rain and having to fight a battle or defend your homeland and not just doing that but doing that for months on end with no clear indication of when that struggle would come to an end or indeed if it ever would 
and in the end if it would all have been worth it, or if he would be defeated. By the 1st of June 1918, it appeared as though the phenomenal durability of the German army had paid off. After several costly but rapid advances, German armies were within 39 miles of Paris. Although Ludendorff and Hindenburg did not appreciate it at the time, this was to represent the peak of their success and the high point in their efforts to force through the Allied lines. From this exhilarating summit, where victory appeared in sight as the Germans exploited the gaps in the Allied lines, the only way to go was down and fast. By the time Ludendorff had created the awkwardly shaped, badly supplied salient which had brought his men so near to Paris, to the point that they could even lob shells into the city's suburbs, the underlying facts which he had worked so hard to ignore had finally begun to tell. There were simply not enough men to conduct the operations he envisioned. Worse than that, those men that did remain were perpetually hungry, beyond sick of the war, and vulnerable to disease, disorder and desertion. The three evil D's. But other evils existed too, such as the twin evils of underdeveloped supply lines, accompanied by advances into regions where wine could be found in cellars and unharvested food could be found in the fields. This led, of course, to several instances where order in the German army units collapsed. The men got drunk and tried to forget their plight, they raided wine cellars, they stripped fruit from trees, and they ate unripened corn in the fields. As bad as the Allies had it with supply issues and strategic problems, their men were still far better fed than the Germans. A fact grudgingly realised when supplies of the British bully beef were seized eagerly by advancing stormtroopers, and the penny began to drop. Defensive plans which had brought Ludendorff to within a breath of a coup, names like Michael, Georgette, Blücher and Gneisenau, had also cost Germany half a million casualties by the onset of June. 90,000 men had been killed, scores more were wounded, and 32,000 had even been taken prisoner. The initially unstoppable waves of stormtroopers had been stopped, as the manpower reserves of the German army were depleted and demand could not meet supply. The miles of wasteland which was captured could not feed the men or bring back those soldiers that had been lost, and the further they advanced, the more the Allied front appeared to crystallise and solidify to frustrate the German advance. Efforts to divert Allied reserves from the north by attacking to the south could not last so long as they were conducted by a German war machine entering its fifth grinding year of operation. Important bridges had been captured, railway junctions seized and some limited supplies taken, but these victories were drops in the bucket compared to the immense demands which total victory in the West would require of the Germans. Every day the Allies received more reinforcements from the American and British manpower pools. Ludendorff had not the strength to capture Reims and ordered his men instead to bypass it and maintain their offensive. This the men did to the best of their abilities, their worn-out bodies being pushed grimly forwards to be met by a new and terrible enemy, the Spanish flu. The epidemic which was to send perhaps as many as 50 million people to their graves first began to make its presence felt during the summer of 1918 with the emaciated and weakened Germans providing the ideal targets. Thanks to the combined problems of disease and a lack of supplies, even those men which Ludendorff could scrape together by late June served in units which were often 50% under strength or worse. The underlying facts made for troubling reading, but so long as the Germans remained on the offensive, they could be excused. Once a counter-attack from the Allies began, though, out of the shattered 
skeleton of France, the concerted pressure which they could bring to bear could well occasion a total collapse in the German powers of resistance and massive Allied gains which effectively cancelled out all that the Germans had gained themselves at such a high cost. This, as we know, was what happened, because on the 18th of July 1918, 2,133 Allied guns swept across the German defences west of Soissons as nine infantry divisions emerged from behind the fire and shrapnel to take advantage. Ferdinand Foch, that steely Frenchman appointed during the height of the Allied crisis in the spring of 1918 to command and coordinate all Allied soldiers, believed that a breakthrough was imminent and he targeted the overextended salient which Ludendorff's advances had carved out of French soil. In addition to the nine divisions, 493 tanks were also committed, including some new high-speed Renault models, designed specifically to keep pace with the infantry. Not even the skies were safe, as 1,143 aircraft buzzed overhead, strafing targets and bombing stationary vehicles. The Second Battle of the Marne had begun as a German offensive, launched in mid-July, and it had ended a month later following an Allied counter-attack and the destruction of the German salient, which had been aimed at Paris. 52 Allied divisions, supported by over 3,500 guns, tanks, aircraft and cavalry, were involved, and the results were immediately felt. Germany lost 168,000 casualties during the month-long campaign, to the Allied 133,000. These were men which Ludendorff had not expected to lose, he had not even expected to have to defend, and he could not afford the disaster. Predictably, the delicate balance between advance on paper and loss behind the scenes collapsed once the Allies pressed hard enough. On the 8th of August, Ludendorff was exclaiming that it had been a black day for the German army, with the further 90,000 casualties suffered, but it was just the beginning. The Hundred Days Offensive, which followed, effectively rolled up the remainder of Germany's military resistance, and the army collapsed, surrendering in droves to the Allies, often just for the promise of food, but also due to the immense frustration and exhaustion which had long ago eaten away at the soldiers' capacity to carry on. During these Hundred Days, beginning on the 8th of August and ending with the Armistice on the 11th of November, a succession of interconnected campaigns enabled the Allies to surge forward and capitalise upon the chronic problems within German high command, which included the doom-laden duo of Ludendorff and Hindenburg, who were laid low with nervous anxiety. There seemed little for the Germans to do in the face of the military collapse. While the pill was rough and immensely unpalatable to the taste, it would have to be swallowed and quickly before the Allied supremacy in arms became too telling. A timely ceasefire and the initiation of peace negotiations, while Germany still possessed men capable of fighting, was the last hope for a defeated nation. On the 4th of October, both the Austrian and German governments sent appeals through Swiss mediaries. Their aim was to end the war based on American President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, and they hoped that if matters proceeded quickly enough, the equally exhausted allies would prove amenable to a negotiated settlement which would not disadvantage or dishonour Germany. Even while the representatives talked and the approaches were received by the Americans, Europe itself did not sit still. As the Germans investigated back-channel options, one Frenchman sensed that the end was near. His name was Georges Clemenceau, and for the last year, ever since his appointment as Premier in late 1917, 
he had stood as the bulwark against defeatism, as the defiant, resilient, patriotic Frenchman who refused to countenance surrender, even when the fortunes of war appeared by spring 1918, to turn determinedly against the Allies. Clemenceau in the civilian theatre and Ferdinand Foch in the military represented the last push of a France that had endured unimaginable trials and given its all. The experience of so many years of restless, all-consuming war had defined French politics and French life for what it seemed like an age. Indeed, the French Republic itself seemed to have aged through the experience. Although the French soldier rarely faltered, he did require stiff, inspirational leadership during the darker times when, like a human being, he did falter. The humanitarian, or perhaps the cowardly, might argue that the war was pointless, that victory was impossible, that in spring 1918 Germany was too strong for France to beat her, and that the best which could be hoped for was a negotiated peace which would preserve the status quo. Clemenceau did not believe in those claims. He believed that France owed a debt of revenge to Germany, and that, no matter the cost, it was imperative for the future of French security and prosperity that she collect. The Frenchman who would personify his country at the Paris Peace Conference, who would cut that striking figure in all portraits of the Big Four and Big Three, who argued passionately and relentlessly for punitive terms, who effectively made the post-war order as we know it, was born in 1841 to a middle-class family in the Vendée region of France. The Vendée is a region along France's wild Atlantic coast, and in Clemenceau's eyes, the region remained poor, economically backward and politically conservative, the majority of its population being peasantry. The Clemenceau family was rooted in the region, George's ancestors being lawyers, Huguenot pastors, or like his father, a physician. George's father, Dr. Benjamin Clemenceau, was a political activist in addition to his profession as a doctor. Surprisingly, Benjamin's qualifications appear mostly to have been in vain. As far as the historical record shows, he never actually treated a patient, and he made his income instead off of his land holdings. In spite of the family's home being in a Catholic conservative region of France, where royalists had once battled for a decade against the revolutionary French government, George's mother was a staunch Protestant and his father an atheist. His parents instilled within George a love of learning, a scepticism towards religion, and a strong sense of patriotism which he would retain for all of his life. The Clemenceau family's status as misplaced radicals is confirmed the further back one goes. George's great-grandfather, in spite of the Vendée's battle with Napoleon's regime, served as a member of the Council of 500, and then as one of Bonaparte's personal dignitaries. The family's historical connection to Protestantism, its forced conversion during the era of Louis XIV, and the existence of another branch of the family in England tells the story of a family that fought for conviction as well as for country. Clemenceau's political education began in childhood, as the 1848 revolution shook France to pieces and his father was arrested twice in the 1850s for political offences. Although his father had a wild side, Georges loved him and had a special connection with him as the firstborn and eldest of three sons. Benjamin Clemenceau was blessed with a large family which remained close-knit for its existence. 
Georges Clemenceau, regardless of his political position, continued to return to his home in the Vendée region even after his father died in 1897, and he remained close to his six siblings all of his life. The family unit which Georges had been born into seems to have profoundly shaped his political outlook, with his father having the greatest influence over the young Georges' development. Arrested in 1858 for his republican activities by Napoleon III's regime, it appeared as though Dr. Benjamin Clemenceau would be deported to Algeria. A 17-year-old, Georges came to bid his father farewell, and while speaking to his father exclaimed, I will avenge you, to which his father replied, If you wish to avenge me, work. Work, Georges Clemenceau did. As he progressed through the French education system, he then went to pursue his studies in medicine, as his father and forefathers had done before him. All the while, the influences from Georges' upbringing followed him wherever he went. Though it was a republican household in ideology, the Clemenceau family furthered a curious contradiction by acting as aristocratic landlords in their pocket of the Vendée, as Georges Clemenceau's sister remembered. Even my nurse called me Mademoiselle. In practice, one could not have had a more aristocratic education in spite of the most republican principles. I easily discovered the flagrant contradictions between the dogmas I heard proclaimed in the most categorical terms and the real conditions of life in which I had my small share. How could I not see the difference between our habits and those of the peasants? We had nothing in common, not even language. Strange and contradictory though it seemed, Dr. Benjamin Clemenceau and his family did actually have a benevolent relationship with their tenants, whom they spent a great deal of money bettering. Again, actions like these seem to have installed within Georges an appreciation and care for his fellow Frenchmen, which brought him closer towards the political left. Although Georges was able to remember having between 5 and 13 servants throughout their chateau, he was also able to recall a sort of community full of life where it was not at all hard to be in service. Having had the best childhood his father could have designed for him, by the early 1860s, 20-year-old Georges Clemenceau ventured into medical school, keeping one eye on his profession and another on politics. While political participation was stunted and stuffy under Napoleon III's regime, Georges theoretically had more important things to think about, building his career. In spite of his natural gift for learning and striking intelligence, though, Georges went the way of his father and became distracted and enamoured by political creeds which were forbidden by law. He was not alone, though. 1860s France was a hotbed of political disaffection, as liberalism and activism clashed and grated painfully against the lesser Bonaparte's regime. By 1871, fortunately for Georges, this stagnation of French politics ended, and yet at the same time, the end of the French Empire and the arrival of the Republic his father had always dreamed of brought into view something else, something unexpected, and something sinister. Germany. Georges Clemenceau's feelings at the outbreak of war between Prussia and France in summer 1870 were conflicted, and not nearly as clear-cut as we may have expected from the resilient wartime French premier he would later be. He wrote to a friend at the time that, I am more disheartened than I can say at everything I see, hear, and read. Whatever happens, this war will be a terrible disaster. For my part, I never expected such a prostration of public opinion. Even Delacluse, 
a known Republican and anti-Bonapartist, is trying to convince himself and others that the enemy of European liberty is to be found at Berlin, and that we will carry the revolution on our banners. If France lost, then the French would suffer a national humiliation, but if Napoleon won, then his second French empire would be triumphant, and there would be no hope for the arrival of republicanism. George was horrified at his ideological peers for their loud patriotic urgings, and he saw nothing to be gained in the conflict which loomed. It was above his imagination to suppose that this event would have such a transformative effect not only on his life and political career, but also upon international relations and Europe's long-standing balance of power. Following the French defeat the following spring and the proclamation of the German Empire at Versailles, it was plain that things would never be the same again. France had been decisively defeated. She had been brought to her lowest point by a Prussian ruffian who continued to manipulate Europe, and she had had her predominance over the continent's affairs torn away from her. It was a time for national mourning, and the perfect time for the 30-year-old Clemenceau to enter into politics. Georges Clemenceau remained left of centre for his entire political life, in a French republic which was brimming with as many ideologies as it was with conservatives. Curiously, the arrival of a republic did not bring about the dawning of a radical new political age. Instead, it brought about the moderation of extremist views among the socialist side of the political spectrum. French statesmen like Leon Gambetta and Jules Ferry were referred to as opportunists due to their professed desire to postpone far-reaching reform to a more opportune time. Clemenceau rallied against these paper leftists, who he decried for relinquishing their more extreme views in return for power. The Republic was powered by men like these, though, and while Clemenceau denounced revolution as illegitimate, he nonetheless advocated the more radical programme which would have dramatically transformed France. The monopoly on power by political giants like Gambetta and Ferry underlined the fact that personalities, rather than political parties, dominated French political life. These mini-Bismarcks, for lack of a better term, balanced domestic support with popular policies in a bid to cling to power and empower France at the same time. But the twin challenges of a changing world in a combative international arena meant that controversy and confrontation was never far from the French ministries which ruled between 1871 to 1906. There was the Boulanger crisis in 1889, when popular general Georges Boulanger appeared close to establishing a military dictatorship based on his popular calls for revenge against Germany. Then there was the Panama crisis of 1892, when it emerged that the Panama Canal Company had bribed the French government to keep quiet about its flagging fortunes. Once the company collapsed, it cost France half a billion francs. In 1894, though, there began the most infamous pre-war scandal of all, the Dreyfus Affair, which divided France along political lines still further, as socialist, anti-clerical elements faced off against conservative, militarist, anti-Semitic sentiments, with the French press loudly operating on all sides. To cut a long story short, justice won out, and Alfred Dreyfus was cleared of any wrongdoing. The so-called Dreyfusards who had supported him were making great gains in French politics then over the following years. The scandal did rock France to its very core, though. Historians are still coming to terms with exactly how significant this 12-year scandal was for French politics and culture, 
and the extent to which it impacted French political life. If you want a detailed explainer on the Dreyfus Affair, then be sure to check out the multi-part series, which the lovely Diana has released on it for her podcast, The Land of Desire. I'll put a link in the description below. You won't regret it. Land of Desire is a great show. For our narrative, though, the Dreyfus Affair was especially significant because of what it did for Clemenceau's career. By its end in 1906, Georges Clemenceau, now in his mid-60s, was given charge of his first ministry. Okay, history friends, so we've reached the halfway point of this large episode, and like I did before, I'm going to break it up with a little bit of a song. This song is not the song of the week, it was merely a song that I thought was suitable for the mood and suitable for the era. It's called What Did You Do When the Great War Daddy by Tom Clark. It was released in 1919, but before we look at it, you should know that this episode is brought to you by the Delegation Game. But Zach, you just told me that at the beginning of the episode. Yes, I know, but maybe you've forgotten, because it's been 40 minutes, and because I can't think of what else to make this episode be brought to you by. So we're going to go with the Delegation Game. Just a tiny reminder, literally a few seconds. Do click on the link in the description of this episode below if you would like to investigate all that the Delegation Game has to offer. It's something unprecedented, never been done in history podcasting before, and if you are at all interested in this era and you want to sort of live it out yourself with other people who are just as historically nerdy as you, then the Delegation Game is the place to be. Check it out by going to wafpodcast.com forward slash delegation game or clicking the link in the description below. Anyway, that's it guys. Enjoy this song and we will be back afterwards with the second half of Georges Clemenceau's episode. the local reservoir and saw that no one drank it. 
When small boys got impertinent, I soon applied to stopper and frightened them by threatening to whistle for a copper. And that's what I did in the Great War, Daddy. What did you do in the Great War, Muriel? I said the land girl rose at six. I fed the cows and milked the chicks. I was a farmer's boy. I said goodbye to crepe machines and pretty low-necked blouses and wore an old thick flannel shirt and an ugly pair of braces. And that's what I did in the great war, Daddy. Since 1877, Georges Clemenceau had sat in the Chamber of Deputies on the far left and was a loud, articulate and occasionally popular politician. After intervening in several of the aforementioned crises that we were talking about and coming out the better for it, Clemenceau used his political capital to never actually form his own government, but instead to influence the development of new ministries, which he then attempted to exert some kind of control over, usually unsuccessfully. For his activities, Clemenceau became known as the destroyer of ministries and was a loud critic of colonial policies of expansion, which he correctly saw as an attempt by Germany to distract France from the mission nearest and dearest to his own heart and the heart of many other Frenchmen, the regaining of the lost provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. Clemenceau's first ministry was linked to the Dreyfus Affair, but it was also undeniably touched by external affairs and the tension between Germany and France in the First Moroccan Crisis, which had resulted in the dismissal of the French foreign minister in the collapse of that government shortly thereafter. By 1906, then, Clemenceau was tasked not only with bringing those elements of French society back together again, he was also responsible for defending and representing France on the world stage, at a time when the alliance system of Europe was undergoing a great transformation of its own. Clemenceau had earlier lost his seat due to criticism of the Franco-Russian alliance. He had simply not been able to square his personal and political beliefs with his love of France, and rather than approve of the French friendship with the autocratic Russian Empire after so many years of political isolation, Clemenceau chose instead to stay true to his political convictions. In 1906, though, Clemenceau was less vocal about Russia's democratic shortcomings, perhaps because that country had just experienced a revolution which shook the Tsar's regime to its core, but more likely because Clemenceau realised that, now that he was in charge, French security would be better served through political pragmatism, at least in international affairs. By this point in his life, Clemenceau had forged a formidable reputation as a straight talker, popular reformist and radical leftist. But who was Clemenceau really? The historian Geoffrey Brune gives a concise summary of his character when he writes, His outstanding quality was a ruthless realism which made him a touchstone of the genuine amid the shams, the sophists and the mountbacks of a hypocritical age. His second noteworthy quality was courage. He dared to proclaim unpleasant truths and to fight for unpopular causes, rare attributes among men and rarer still among democratic statesmen. A third quality, which some might be disposed to deny him, was idealism. It was a crusty, harsh and practical idealism. It proposed to accept man as he is and to improve him, if improvement were possible, by sweat and tears. 
Above all, it was proposed to treat him as a creature who could not be helped if he would not help himself. A propensity for myopic optimism, euphemistic promises, and utopian formulas, Clemenceau considered the major curses of mankind, and his indictment of most humanitarians, from Jean Jaurès to Woodrow Wilson, was that their verbs were all in the future tense. On the one hand, the idealistic and reformist personality with Clemenceau should have gelled well with Woodrow Wilson, who wished genuinely to reform the international system. The difference between the two men and the reason why both came to find the other so insufferable by the end was that Clemenceau dealt in the realistic, and Wilson, at least according to Clemenceau, dealt in the unrealistic. Clemenceau was a career politician. He knew men and their foibles. He knew how France worked, and he knew that the world in which France existed could not be changed as easily or as suddenly as the American president imagined. On the one hand, then, it would be accurate to say that Clemenceau disliked Wilson because he took him to be naive. Yet, this does not tell the whole story. It was more the question of what this naivety would do to French security and what it would mean for the future of France's interests that truly drove the wedge between the two men. As we will see though, while the two men were emotional beings, they were also capable of a remarkable level of professional courtesy, and this helped greatly to smooth things along during the tenser moments of the Paris Peace Conference. But look at us, we've shot far ahead. Let's bring our story back to a critically important watershed moment in French foreign policy then, that moment when the worst enemy of yore became the necessary friend. I still believe that the advent of William Gladstone to power would promise to accomplish everything that Lord Salisbury refused, the Entente Cordiale of the Two Peoples. These were the words uttered by Georges Clemenceau in October 1891, nearly 15 years before the closer cooperation of Britain and France on the world stage would be solidified under the Entente Cordiale, often shorthanded simply to the Entente, in 1904. 1891 was a very different world than that which eventually allowed the Entente Cordiale to flourish. It was the twilight era of French diplomatic and military isolation, a European state system recently shorn of Bismarck, when the traditional agreements seemed to be in flux. Clemenceau, for his part, was determined to think outside the box where French diplomacy was concerned, and as he returned from an unofficial trip to London in the summer of 1891, he learned then that his peers had begun the process which would lead to the Franco-Russian alliance the following year. To all conventional political thinkers in the early 1890s, an alliance with Russia meant that a similar agreement with England was impossible, but to Clemenceau, as his opening quote suggests, he believed that change in this regard could be effected with a change in government and some moderate, considerate, delicate diplomatic talks. The aim, as Clemenceau understood it, was to bring France out of her isolation by increasing the array of options at her disposal. If France could only heal the rift between Britain and Russia, then the next step could well guarantee an unbeatable league against Germany, made up of the most powerful, formidable states in the world. This was how Clemenceau thought in 1891, and he carried these thoughts with him into his first ministry in 1906. By 1906, the Entente Cordiale was a done deal, and an improvement in Anglo-French relations was continuing. This, combined with the strengthening of the Franco-Russian alliance in spring 1906, on the back of another loan from the French government, fortified French security on both of these flanks. 
Yet Clemenceau never ceased to think about what could be achieved if France's two separate allies could be brought together and united under a common agreement. It was this method of thinking which moved him forwards towards some stark diplomatic achievements in the years to come. It was John Maynard Keynes, that famous British economist who did so much to shape our understanding of the economic consequences of the Treaty of Versailles, who provided a still more important picture of Georges Clemenceau. In Keynes's estimation, Clemenceau's one illusion was France, and his one disillusion was mankind. This judgment on Clemenceau's character intimates that the wily Frenchman was single-minded and ruthless in the pursuit of his country's national interests, particularly at the Paris Peace Conference. Keynes's judgment attests that Clemenceau did not trust his fellow man enough to be gentle on those human beings that did not hail from France, especially in his relations with Germany or England. So narrow-minded was Clemenceau that he pushed too far and alienated too many, including the numerous English and American friends that he possessed. However, there is good reason to believe that Keynes's estimation of Clemenceau, much like his estimation of the impact which reparations had upon post-war Germany, as we'll see, is erroneous. According to the historian Robert K. Hanks, Clemenceau was an Anglophile of the First Order, a status reinforced by his radicalism in France and by his frequent trips to London to visit his many friends. Understanding this is important because, much like our profiles with Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George seek to do, it adds more meat onto the bones of what may appear otherwise straightforward characters. George Clemenceau, the vengeful, ignorant, snobby Frenchman, is an easy portrait to digest. It is pretty straightforward and it's easy to get to grips with. But Clemenceau, the complicated, multi-layered French patriot come Anglophile, is not. Far from narrow-minded, Clemenceau was of the opinion that the French people in general, but more particularly its political classes, needed to be more open to foreign influences, particularly from Britain and America. In 1922, reflecting on his own experiences, Clemenceau remarked acidly on his peers' shortcomings. We had several troubles. One was that the French understood nothing at all of the English or the Americans. Also, the Millerans, Poincarés and Briands were not men of this world and had not travelled. It was true that if they had travelled, they would not have understood what they saw, so it would not have mattered. With some exceptions, Clemenceau was aware that few French politicians bothered to learn English, a major stumbling block in the increasingly Anglophile world which was emerging from the Great War. The more insular French statesmen were, occupied by their political circle and closed off from the rest of the world, the more likely France was to become isolated and surrounded in the future. He had a point. French culture and the lure of Paris drew 800,000 Britons to France in 1929. By contrast, in that same year, only 55,000 French citizens travelled the other way across the Channel to see Britain. Perhaps this said something simply about the weather, but Clemenceau believed that the issue was one of French character, rather than an exodus of Brits seeking an escape from the rain. In Clemenceau's opinion, Britons were not afraid to experience other cultures, to experiment with languages, or become fascinated with foreign literature. Why, Clemenceau insisted, could the French not follow suit? In the years after the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, Clemenceau became more and more vocal about the need to reverse this French cultural and societal trend, and by doing so he showed a certain perceptiveness which is not generally attributed to him by most historians. 
we find it easy to write off Clemenceau as the prototypical Frenchman, unconcerned with the outside world, firm in his belief that the French ways were the best, and hostile to any suggestion that his country was not entitled to all the spoils of the peace table. On the contrary, Clemenceau did not merely admire and like England and its ways, he seems to have been defined and almost consumed by them. Robert K. Hanks wrote that, Clemenceau's interest in England extended to nearly every aspect of his life and political vision. He visited England frequently, spoke fluent English, wore English clothes, used the English handshake, bought his furniture at Maples, dined in the Parisian Café d'Anglais, kept English dogs, admired English horses, attended races at Ascot, and even boasted in 1917 that he had read every substantial book published in the English language in the past 20 years. From the early 1870s onwards, he hoped that England and France could be brought together to maintain the political equilibrium in Europe on behalf of democracy, while during the 1880s he hoped to recast France's chaotic multi-party system into a two-party system based on Whig-Tory lines. Considering all these factors, it is little wonder that when the German ambassador to France had to describe Clemenceau's foreign policy in 1906, he used one word, English. In 1910, the author of that year's Encyclopedia Britannica remarked on Georges Clemenceau that of all French public men in all political groups, he, Clemenceau, was throughout his long career the most consistent friend of England. Clemenceau translated great English works like those of John Stuart Mill from English into French. He surrounded himself with like-minded people who believed that Anglo-French cooperation was the way of the future which would secure Europe and the world against German militarism. Clemenceau was convinced, in other words, that the future of French security lay in a firm diplomatic and military relationship with Britain, and when he became Premier in October 1906, he set to work strengthening that relationship, as well as taking it to the next level by baking a Russian friendship into the mix. He was utterly driven in his quest. It was indeed something he had been working towards for years, and it was a very happy coincidence that the friendship with England that made him so contented also reinforced French military security in Europe. In January 1906, a few months before Clemenceau came to power, the British War Office drew up their first plans for landing a force of 100,000 in Europe if war came. Both Paris and London insisted that they retained freedom of action in whatever eventuality, but in Germany, the potential for British intervention in any war with France began to be factored in. Certainly Clemenceau saw it as the march of progress. Since the turn of the century, numerous old British figures had died, and the history of Francophobia and that tradition of competing with France seemed to have died with them. France also found a friend in King Edward VII, and while Clemenceau had nothing to do directly with the maturation of this policy in 1904, since he wasn't in power at the time, he was determined to do all in his power to reinforce the agreement as soon as he could. Clemenceau found that one of the greatest friends to his determinedly pro-British policy were the Germans, who initiated the naval race shortly thereafter, thereby pushing an antagonistic Germany to the front pages of British newspapers for the first time with such venom and force. In 1906-07, though, Clemenceau found that even while the foreign policy pursued by Liberal Foreign Minister Sir Edward Grey was merely a continuation of that pursued under the Conservatives, British statesmen were themselves frustratingly non-committal, on the grounds that affording a first-class navy and army was an impossible demand, 
Clemenceau failed in his attempts to persuade the British to adopt some form of conscription and to increase the size of their army. The British government was nervous and hesitant to commit itself to the task of combating Germany across the world, especially where opportunities for independent action existed and where problems with Russia remained. Unsurprisingly then, Clemenceau believed that the best way to ensure British hostility towards Germany increased and developed, and to ensure tighter participation within the Entente, was to remove Russia as an ominous force in British foreign policy estimations. Clemenceau appreciated that he would have to mediate a rapprochement between the two powers. If he could do that, then there would be nowhere for English energies to flow, but against the Germans. The renegotiation of the Franco-Russian alliance in spring 1906 confirmed Germany as the target of the alliance, where previously Britain had been a potential target as the language of the alliance had been kept deliberately vague. With this clarification, a major obstacle in the way of an Anglo-Russian friendship was cast aside, and Clemenceau intended to work on this from the moment he came into office. During the first week of his premiership, Clemenceau had met with the Russian ambassador to France, the Russian foreign minister, the British ambassador to France, and the British foreign secretary. For a variety of reasons, a rapprochement with Russia was looked upon favourably in London at that moment. By joining her, the cost of combating the Russian colossus could be invested elsewhere, such as in the naval race with Germany. Indeed, by closing ranks with Russia and France, the hidden details of the alliance between those two states would also be made available to Britain. Russian penetration into Persia through the use of French-funded railways had long been a source of concern to Britain, and Persia remained a sticking point in Anglo-Russian relations, which was never actually fully resolved, even by 1914. Nevertheless, the new Entente proved stable. By early 1908, it was being referred to as the Triple Entente, though British statesmen and journalists disliked the term because it implied limitations on Britain's diplomatic freedom of action. In return for the settling of colonial questions in Asia and the Middle East, Russia committed to cease confronting Britain and to cooperate closely with her in questions of European defence. The agreement was, as British policymakers were wont to point out, not set in stone and did not prevent Britain from pursuing an independent policy line. In reality, though, a watershed moment in British foreign policy had been arrived at, and Clemenceau must be considered largely responsible for pushing all the pieces together. It was just as well that he did, because Clemenceau's ministry fell in July 1909, and from his immediate reaction, one had difficulty imagining the near 70-year-old Frenchman ever entering into politics again let alone leading the country. A month after his exit, Clemenceau was in Carlsbad for a badly needed holiday of relaxation after three years at the country's helm. Now I will become a journalist again, he exclaimed to his sister-in-law. Now I am free once more. Now I can laugh and swear at other people's stupidities again, instead of perpetrating stupidities myself. These years between government and war were to prove some of the most personally fulfilling and calming of his life. Put forward as an expert on democracy to an international audience, Clemenceau embarked on a lecture tour of South America, where he was treated with much esteem and respect. It made Clemenceau's day to spend much of 1910 in Argentina, lecturing to those that would listen about France's democratic system and its flaws, while also collecting information on a book on Latin American politics, which of course he released shortly after his return to France. Unfulfilled, so it seemed, 
Clemenceau dipped in and out of politics, though ill health occasionally brought him low. He retreated to a secluded cottage in a small village a few hours' drive from Paris, a homely sanctuary for the aged Frenchman. It was known as his place of residence, and his friends were said to visit him there regularly. As the likes of Claude Monet darkened his doorway, Clemenceau was occupied himself with thoughts of improving the garden, buying new and, of course, traditionally English furniture, and planning his next published works. He never moved on from the ink and quill of yore, and it was said that he was not satisfied until he had emptied his inkwell at the end of each day. Perhaps Clemenceau and I have something in common. Age, it seemed, had not sapped his energy nor his thirst for current affairs. While the years of relative tranquillity calmed some elements of his personality, he remained typically gruff and hard towards his estranged wife and his adult children. On the surface, he seemed to offer his son little affection, writing to his son's barracks quartermaster to ensure that Michel Clemenceau received no special treatment despite his son's often poor health. However, as with other elements of Clemenceau's personality, when one looks deeper, a warmer, more humane side reveals itself. He may have been stiff and cold towards his son in person, but he wrote to a friend who lived near the area almost daily for regular updates. He kept up with the weather and could trace his son's movement at all times. Much like his country, Clemenceau cared about his son, but unlike his son, Clemenceau loved his country loudly and proudly and not at all from afar. In opposition he may have been, but Clemenceau was never far removed from politics. In 1913 he completed his latest work, well actually it was a continuous work, a newspaper called Le Homme Libre or The Free Man for which he wrote a column. The paper was by no means a literary success but it was a new medium through which Clemenceau could continue the work which had first made him famous, that being tearing down his political rivals. Its readership did not extend too far across the country, but there was not a political soul alive in Paris that did not pour over the latest issue as soon as it was available. When The Free Man was censored by the wartime French government, Clemenceau showed his flair for the dramatic by changing its name to The Chained Man. The eruption of war in 1914 certainly brought him to think about things other than just the renaming of his newspaper, though. Indeed, it helped to crystallise his personal and political beliefs. Everything he had worked towards boiled down to this moment, and he was determined to play his part in war as he had in peace. As George Clemenceau had been building his political career and saving his energies in opposition, the world had marched on through crisis after crisis. The second Moroccan crisis in 1911 was followed shortly thereafter by an Italian attack on Libya, then the First Balkan War and then the second. Arms deals and army reforms characterised the arms race on the continent, even if the naval race did die down. Europe was armed to the teeth by the time 1914 dawned, and Clemenceau's approval for a bill which scraped the proverbial manpower of France for the army only added fuel to the fire and the sense of isolation and siege in the central powers. By this point indeed, one quarter of all French foreign investment resided in Russia, and the largest member of the Entente was all the better for it. Tsar Nicholas II's empire appeared more daunting than ever, having recovered its strength after the loss to Japan, and having so improved its military organisation that it appeared nearly impossible for Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy to close the yawning gap. Meanwhile, influence had been lost in Turkey, as the Ottomans signed a deal with the Anglo-French to modernise their navy, and the Balkans was effectively dominated by Serbia, a Russian puppet. 
It's easy now to see the impossible task which lay before the central powers' governments. You surely know my thoughts on what happened next, but make sure to check out the July Crisis Project if you need a refresher, or that third introduction episode if you need a really quick refresher. The important thing for us to note was how Clemenceau reacted to the increasing tension and evident increase in army size. Germany's military effectives would stand at 850,000 by 1914, compared to France's 750,000, following the passing of the Controversial Army Bill in late 1913. Now that he was armed with a newspaper, he determined to use the free man for one purpose, to blame everything that followed on the Germans. As Clemenceau wrote on the 21st of May 1913, One must be deliberately blind not to see that the Germans lust for power, and the impact of this makes Europe tremble each day. They have fixed, as their policy, the extermination of France. If the catastrophe is inevitable, we must steel ourselves to meet it with all our strength. Shortly thereafter, when socialist political leaders from Germany and France met in Switzerland, the radical liberal socialist Georges Clemenceau condemned the meeting and predicted its failure, saying... What too many of these people here still do not wish to realise is that Germany, entirely organised for violence, cannot escape it if she would, and certainly reveals no desire to escape from the fatality of further harvests of violence. Thus, as sympathetic and appreciative as he was for the struggles of man, it appeared that so long as those struggling were Germans, he was content. It is difficult to rid ourselves of the impression that Clemenceau really did not like Germany, His diplomatic policy while Premier had been, after all, revolving around the strengthening of France's position to the detriment of Germany, and he advocated no reproachment, no mercy to be shown to the German government if ever any olive branches were detected, though admittedly there were few. Clemenceau understandably became as loathed in Berlin as he was loved in London. Conversely, the strength of his Anglophilia was matched only by his Germanophobia, Two weeks before the outbreak of the war, in the last peacetime Bastille Day that France would celebrate for some time, Clemenceau launched into a biting attack on the government in the Chamber of Deputies, saying, What has this government accomplished during half a century of peace, all these noble patriots to whom the organisation of our military forces has been entrusted? France has provided the men. With what sort of equipment have they been furnished? If the arms they are to bear prove inferior to those they must encounter a thing beyond excuse when the nation has poured out its gold without stint, you already hear the cry of 1870. We are betrayed. It is eternally with me, the terrible despair of those heroes, armed with nothing but their valour, who died, mowed down by a merciless rain of lead, without being able even to exchange blow for blow. On the 31st of July, Jean Jaurès, the eminent French socialist who had called for all socialists in France and Germany to link arms and halt the war, well, he was assassinated. Jaurès was in many respects the antithesis of Clemenceau, but in some surprising ways, Clemenceau was not too different to his less fortunate peer. Clemenceau was the anti-clerical radical who had more in common with Britain's Liberal Unionist Party than with most of his countrymen. He believed in reform from the top down, but not too much reform. Giving the vote to women, Clemenceau insisted, would return France to the medieval era, just in case you were starting to like the guy a bit. Similarly, Clemenceau despised so many aspects of his country's bureaucracy because he thought it stifling and unfair, but he also loved his country at the same time with a fervour that few others could match. He believed in the principles of socialism and social justice, 
but unlike Jean Jaurès, he did not allow his political ideology to supersede the only true religion he ever really seemed to have, patriotism. It was the fate of Jaurès to preach the Brotherhood of Nations and to believe with such unswerving faith in this noble conception that he was not daunted by the brutal reality of the facts. Such were the respectful but still backbiting words uttered by Clemenceau upon learning of Jaurès's death. The brutal reality of these facts, which seemed so clear, so exhilarating, so illuminating, so exciting, so wondrous, so grand to Clemenceau, were to expose themselves in all their vile, terrible glory within a few short years. France was at war, and although few could have known it, including Clemenceau himself, the old man still had one more premiership left within him. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.